0: So this morning, this morning I wanted to bring down some of the energy or bring to our Wednesday gathering some of the energy and inspiration from being at the Metta retreat up the hill. And I'm part of the teaching team along with Sylvia in a one-week retreat on loving kindness and Metta. And I come from that. I come from having actually woken up about 4.30 or 5, and um, been practicing uh, much of the morning, and uh, working with people, opening through metta practice. I gave a talk a few days ago, and I'm giving another talk Friday morning, and I didn't want to simply bring a talk that I had already given here. I wanted it to be more fresh and in the flow. So I waited to this morning to see what, was, what, what would come. And I had a dream that gave me guidance on how to talk with you this morning. And it was a dream that I interpreted as related to fear. Mm-hmm. So the theme I want to explore is fear, <coughs> fearlessness, <coughs> and love. Or we could say fear, fearlessness, and loving-kindness, or, or metta. <coughs> so that's what I'll explore. And my hope is to uh, leave a fair amount of time open. So, in the dream from last night, I found myself talking to a group of people. And the people were in fear. And it seemed to be a dream about coming difficulties at the collective level. And the people were concerned about what might happen I don't remember any distinct issues being named, you know, whether it was climate disruption or social disturbance or whatever, but people were were fearful. And I found myself uh, talking to them. And of course, those of you who have studied dreams know that, who was I really talking to? (laughs) <laughs> you know? Um But I found myself talking from a place that was not fearful. had a lot of strength. It was, I woke up and I was inspired. Mmm, strong. <laughs> <laughs> and in the dream, the voice said, I'm not afraid of violence. And I'm not afraid of horror. And I'm not afraid of anything. And the people in the dream were affected. And they were, I could feel that they, the fear lessened. You know, and there was some way that they said, yes, we can be really with whatever happens. You know. And so, I think I was, uh, in a way, teaching to myself. But it also pointed to this um, aspect of our practice, which is very, very central, which is to really see where there is fear in our own experience. All the different kinds of fear and the power of our practice, and in particular, the power of loving-kindness practice to hold fear, to be an antidote to fear, to guide us to be skillful when there is fear. And I remember how the classical story of the origins of loving-kindness practice came from the Buddha offering the practice of metta, her loving-kindness, as an antidote to fear. We probably tell this story often, uh, but it's a a sweet one. It's kind of on the level of myth, where a group of uh, monks and nuns went to a forest to practice and there were there the there were in that belief system there were all sorts of nature spirits and there were tree spirits in particular of the forest who welcomed them and said we want to support you in your in your practice but they weren't clear there hadn't been a clear agreement on how long the monks and nuns would stay and so it seemed that they Uh, overstayed their welcome, at least according to the tree spirits' way of seeing things. And the tree spirits started to become um, intent on driving away the monks and nuns. And They had the capacity to evoke horrible images and really, really bad smells. (laughs) Which they did. And more or less, in short order, the monks and nuns uh, ran back to the Buddha and said, this is too difficult a situation. We can't really be with this. There's, we're scared of what's happening. And so, the Buddha says, now is the time to practice loving-kindness. And he gave them the practice of loving-kindness deliberately as an antidote to fear. And they went back into the forest, and it's said that the uh, Tree Spirits acted in the ways they had before, but the monks and nuns could handle it, basically. They could be with what was fearful and difficult, and they had capacities to meet it and not to be knocked off balance. They had resources to work with anxiety and fear. And eventually, the Tree Spirits came to see, you know, there's something about these monks and nuns that wasn't quite there the first time. We really like it. Mm -hmm. We will become their protectors. And so the sense of uh, metta as a a way of working with fear is very powerful. And I was uh, actually talking at breakfast and my co-teacher, Heather Martin, reminded me of a a local teacher named Jerry Jompolsky. I think had a book. I don't know if there's a book or... It's called Love is Letting Go of Fear. There's a very interesting relationship between fear and that sense of warmth and kindness, friendliness and love. It's very, very interesting, that that connection. You know, I was thinking of a a few things, um, a few stories, really. Um, One of them is uh, from my own experience that there was, uh, we have, looks like we have some construction going on. It looks <laughs> like a unpacking a or something? Oh, yeah. For the store. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so hopefully it won't be too distracting. <laughs> Just bring your mind back. Yeah. Um, and so um, I remember an experience where, I had had um, dental surgery, and I think I've mentioned this once or twice, where I had, I had been born with my mother's upper jaw and father's lower jaw. And the, they didn't, did not align. It may have been uh, my father's upper jaw and my mother's lower jaw, but at a certain point I had to have surgery, and it was um, called orthognathic surgery, and they basically broke the jaws and reassembled them. I had general anesthesia, and when I woke up, uh, I experienced uh, I experienced both love and fear, and they kind of alternated. There was, but what was predominant was actually a sense of deep care and concern for everyone and everything. That mm. it was as if I had almost, I had been broken in a certain way. I had a sense, insight into the fragility of my own being and my own life. And I really could um, uh, feel the fragility of everything. I could feel the fragility of cups and mugs and plates that were in the room where I was staying in the hospital. And my heart went out to the cups. You know, of course to human beings and others, but really to everything that was there. And it was quite powerful, and that sense of things lasted for ten days. You know, people. You know, again, uh, my colleague Jean Achterberg, who has worked a lot with um, alternative and complementary medicine, says it's not so well known, but general anesthesia is very close to death. And so there's a, one has almost like a kind of near death aspects of a near death experience. Sometimes and I think something like that happened to me, and it lasted quite a long time, and it, and it, but the, the sense of care and love alternated with fear. <clears throat> it was like tuning in to one's fragility, and I'm sure we have this at different times, right? Certain experiences open ourselves up to that sense of fragility, and it can bring about anxiety, and yet what was arising naturally was also a sense of care and love as a response to anxiety, to danger, to, to fear. And that's what we can really uh, cultivate in a, very, in a very strong way. <clears throat> There's also the, the powerful story of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment when he was, um, it's said, assailed by what are called the armies of Mara. The Buddha was practicing And he actually, according to the story, had come to a place of awakening. And he was being tested by Mara, who is the personification of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it said that all of the ways that one can get knocked off center were occurring to the Buddha. Mara was bringing uh, a sense of fear. He would bring what are called the armies of Mara. He would bring a sense of possible violence. He brought things that would evoke fear. He brought uh, seductive energies that would bring about desire, that would knock him off-center. He brought about all sorts of forces that were potentially um, disrupting the awakening of the Buddha. And it's said that the Buddha met this with that sense of awakening connected with metta. And it's said that the arrows being shot by Mara as they were met by this energy of metta and awakening turned into flowers. It's a metaphor for what's possible when we have a strong awareness and, and that sense of metta. And maybe one last story also. Uh, from the historical text, was a sense of uh, the Buddha was at odds with his cousin. It's good to know that the Buddha had family difficulties. (laughs) And his cousin really was, in a way, um, very jealous. He had a cousin named Devadatta. And there was a, um, a long relationship of rivalry and jealousy on the part of Devadatta. And at one point, the Devadatta wanted to become the great teacher and he wanted to actually kill the Buddha. And he tried to kill him three times, you know. And the first two failed, and the third time he brought a mad elephant in the vicinity of the Buddha who went charging at the Buddha, an elephant which had killed many in the past. And the elephant went charging towards the Buddha. And the Buddha did not uh, flinch. He met the elephant and it's said that he met the elephant with metta, with the energy of loving-kindness. And the elephant bowed down to the ground. And so it really shows, I think these are all metaphors, it really shows that when the energy of fear or anxiety or um, distress can be met, It's an active meeting. It's a responsiveness. The Buddha didn't run away from the elephant. There was a meeting of the fear, meeting of the arrows, with this beautiful positive energy of care and love that has the capacity to go against fear. And it can really work when we do the loving-kindness practice. I think as it merges with the mindfulness practice, it can really do that in a variety of ways. One of them is that it can actually, when the metta practice gets strong and there's distress, we can bring the phrases, bring the metta practice, and it can shift the energy in a moment. This is not, this is one way of meeting difficult energies. It can meet the, it can meet anxiety and sometimes just shift the energy. This is not necessarily uprooting the sources of the fear but it's temporarily shifting the energy. You know, if one is waking up in the middle of the night and is distressed distressed by something, sometimes the metta can just move the energy into the, the spirit of loving-kindness. Skillful. And again, doesn't mean it won't come again, doesn't uproot it, but it's skillful meeting in the moment. Or if you're about to take a test for some reason, whatever kind, and there's distress or about to do something, there's distress for anxiety, you're a surgeon about to perform an operation, and distress comes, metta can shift the energy. Important to have that capacity sometimes, you know, so we don't get paralyzed. Do
1: you do it to yourself at that point? Is that where tell us to do it?
0: Yes, one could. The question is, uh, does one do metta towards oneself? One could. Sometimes it's just to bring the metta into the field, but one could do metta towards oneself, one could do it to others, one could just get the energy of metta strong. And it's really partly that one is focusing on one's attention actively. Metta has the power of concentration, as we discussed earlier, and so it actually takes one's attention away from the distress. It can focus the mind. Again, it's not the uprooting of the fear, but it's the shifting away from it. So it can do that. So, Mm -hmm. what is fear? And what drives fear? You know, it's interesting. Um, There's not that much said about fear in the Buddhist tradition. It doesn't appear on the list so frequently, or very frequently at all. And I was reflecting that that there's a way in which fear, I think, is a combination of ignorance and confusion and intelligence. Like most of our strong emotions, there can be intelligence to fear. It's something that we as an organism have as something that can tell us when to respond in a way that would bring about certain kind of safety. So fear is not necessarily just some problem, right? Fear can often carry intelligence. You know, we get near a cliff, the edge of a cliff, we get fearful. We shouldn't just say, fear is mere delusion. (laughs) That would be unwise. And yet, um, if one's a mountain climber, fear can be paralyzing, right? And so we want to see what the intelligence is And sometimes that would mean to respond adequately. You know, if I have something happening and I become anxious, you know, some event happening the next day, and become anxious because I haven't prepared for it. Well, that's intelligence, you know. And so it's part of the working with fear is to see where the intelligence is and see where it's actually helpful to respond. And then it's also a question of where is there confusion in fear. So I think partly being with fear, this is partly what metta can help sort out, is to see where there is um, intelligence and where there is confusion in our fear. And I was, I was reflecting on this because about two weeks ago, for, for different reasons, I had a lot of anxiety arise because of something that was happening. It was quite strong. I hadn't experienced it like that for quite a long time, quite a few years. And it was very interesting to study the anxiety and fear and to see what was intelligent and what was sort of compounding the anxiety and what were skillful ways to work with it. You know, and I I found a few things that were characteristic. You know, what seemed to me something that actually made the anxiety or fear worse were two main things in my instance. I think there are other things. The main one is that I found myself telling catastrophic stories. And the stories connected with fear. Telling oneself fearful stories is right at the center of how fear becomes intense, right? And how fear becomes, actually, confusion. And how fear is not so helpful. I think of that statement by Franklin Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I think it's really pointing to the way that fear can be intelligence, but then we can also, in a way, run with the fear in ways that are driven by our ignorance, by our habitual tendencies, by our reactions. We somehow we have to sort that out. That's really important. And so what i found, and what I find when I work closely with people one-on-one, I've said this a few times, the most common guidance I give to people is watch the scary stories that you tell yourself. This is the single most central guidance, and probably if we only worked with that guidance, in our own practice, it would have a profound impact. Watch the scary stories. And in my instance, I was able to notice scary stories being told and say, this is not helpful, I'm going to cut it. And actually cutting those scary stories helped me to actually be able to respond and see what was intelligent about the fear. That the scary stories actually were paralyzing and made it hard to respond and actually hard to find the intelligence. The other aspect that I found in that anxiety and fear was self-judgment. That the self-judgment was quite strong. And this is interesting for me, because I'm working on a book about judgment. Of course, why am I working on a book on judgment? (laughs) Why have I been teaching it for 10 or 12 years (laughs) regularly? I think one teaches partly what one still has to learn. And I've learned a lot, but there are... Clearly, under certain kinds of stress, everything is there. Everything comes back. I think we know that. And so, for me, it was uh, noticing that. And of course, the benefit of practice is that I could notice both these tendencies. I always found myself saying, OK, Donald, what do you teach other people? <laughs> what might you apply right now? <laughs> right? And so, I could notice the self-judgments. And I, again, I could say to myself, this is self-judgment. This is not helpful, cut. I will not continue with, this is not helpful. I could see that. I, I think that's not really repression, per se. it's really being skillful. You know. And then again, there's a difference. We have to be willing to sit with the, with the um, what's there, you know, and notice it, and study self-judgment. But I could notice, it's essentially noticing with fear, there are sometimes runaway patterns. <coughs> And it's really crucial to be mindful, to notice them, and not to feed them. And it is important to be mindful. And I also, a third aspect of it, I could also notice the way that anxiety was there in my body. And sometimes I just stayed at the level of the body. That's another way to work with fear. And rode the energy in the body as if I was a surfer. Interesting and just stayed with that energy of anxiety in the body. And I found that when I did that, first of all, it helped separate somewhat that energy from the tendency to spin off stories and to spin off self-judgment. And it also actually, in a way, soothes the body. And so this grounding in the body is really, really crucial for, um, for being with fear and really working working in that way. And it's very it's very very central. I was thinking also again from the story of the Buddha's awakening when he awoke Mara said, "What right do you have to claim being awakened? Who are you to say I am awake?" And the Buddha actually responded by touching the earth. You know, in this gesture that we have right behind me, of coming down and touching the earth with the right hand, and said, the earth is my witness. And we can interpret that in a few different ways. It, I think it really points to the role of grounding in the earth and grounding in the body. That we do that, and it removes some, we could say, that Mara is a person, might be a personification of self-doubt of the Buddha. The Buddha having doubts, who am I? You know, to say, I am awake. And he touches the earth. We ground in the body. A powerful way of working with, with fear. A few more words about the special role of, of metta in transforming fear and working with this. Because you could get a sense that what I'm, we're talking about is we can work with a combination of mindfulness and metta. We need the mindfulness to be able to, to know, I am telling myself this story. There is self-judgment going on. This is what's going on in the body. And we need to be able to track those. You know? And there are other things we could talk about, you know, that, that, that's uh, in which there's fear. You know? And we need to be able to have enough mindfulness to really track that. So, again, one of the ways that our practice is so rich is that our mindfulness, when it gets strong, has the capacity to be with difficult emotions and difficult experiences and stay present during them and notice these different aspects and sort them out and stay with them. And that can and contribute, really, to them not taking us away in suffering. It's one of the glories of this practice. It can cut through suffering. It can cut through habitual tendencies. And yet we have to repeat that and watch that continually. The metta itself works in similar ways but somewhat different ways. Because metta is this constant repetition of phrases, it has the aspects of concentration and settling. It takes us towards a quiet mind. It takes us towards a more quiet mind. And when our Awareness is brought into more stillness. We start to touch something bigger than the fear or the anxiety. Even if we touch it for periods of time, then go back into anxiety. Like in my initial story, I was touching a quality of love. It wasn't constant. But the fact that I could touch that love of cups and saucers and so forth and people and know that, was a, I knew that the fear wasn't all there was. And when the mind gets quiet, we touch something, and it stays as part of our deep memory. And it can be there at moments of distress or difficulty. Yeah, I mean, the story that just came to mind is a story that I've told once or twice about when I was coming to California and I broke down <coughs> on Interstate Route 70 on a Saturday night in the fast lane (coughs) on on Route 70 over an aqueduct 60 feet down. And I broke down in the fast lane and my car came to rest around the corner (coughs) on Interstate 70 (coughs) at night. (coughs) And at that point, I had been practicing for 12 years and practice was strong for me, and I was surprised at the resources of calm that immediately were there in that situation. I didn't, it's not like I said, OK, Donald, bring your practice into action. <laughs> or I didn't say, what should I do? Let me read a book right now. <laughs> it was more like a certain level of calm and clarity was there, and I wasn't afraid. I knew it was a dangerous situation. I knew that at any moment a car could come by, not see me, because I was around the bend, hit the car, possibly hit me, throw me over an aqueduct, whatever. And, and so I had clarity, and I was just thinking that the, the resources of practice were available at that difficult moment. And I've heard, I hear, in my role, I hear a lot of stories like that. I hear a lot of stories of people who say, well, five years ago, if this would have happened, I would have been completely thrown for a loop. And now there's some other resources there. And how many can relate to that from your own experience? Yeah, virtually everyone. (laughs) Um, I stayed there for 20 minutes. Um, One car stopped and said, I'll call... Someone, a tow truck. No tow truck came for a long time. Eventually, a carload of people came and they said, we will push you off the highway. And they did. And they pushed me off the highway, off the next off-ramp, which left me kind of in what seemed like a questionable neighborhood with <laughs> warehouses, and seemed, didn't seem like a great neighborhood. And they said, and I said, thank you, and then the next part of the adventure began. <laughs> and I, but then I eventually walked and found a payphone and called someone, and I eventually um, spent uh, four days in a Kansas City motel while, while my transmission was repaired. <laughs> uh, but I, I was okay. And it was, there's some other aspects of the story, which I don't want to go into so much now, but it's basically, the main point I was making really was that something was there that I was surprised by, but I didn't even have to think about it. It was just there.
1: Was it just a calmness, or did you do, did you do a
0: practice? Was it just calmness, or I, did I do a practice? No, I, was, I didn't do anything consciously. Presence, awareness, present-centeredness, calm was just there was just there. I knew it was dangerous. I acted skillfully. I moved away from the car. So if something, and I moved so that I would avoid the tendency to be hit. And if the car was hit, I would not be hit along with it. So I did that. And I, um, okay. I just was alert. Yeah. I was alert and calm and not scared, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's that, that quiet mind helps with metta. Also the way that metta is active, it occupies the mind. It can really shift the energy away from that. Touching the quiet heart, as our metta gets stronger, the heart can really hold, comes more to be able to hold everything. In our practice with metta, metta can help us over time to be familiar with fear, to be familiar with anger, and part of the glory of our practice. And part of what happens sometimes is we just get a certain emotion for a period of time. For me, this has happened in retreats. I've had a retreat, one of my early retreats, I had fear for the better part of 10 days. And I got to study fear. And I think a lot about, in my study, I have a framed uh, poster that I got from the Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont, does anyone know the Bread and Puppet Theater? It's a wonderful place that combines art, politics, and spirituality. They used to have three or four-day festivals with, you know, and they were actually the original Burning Man. They had, they had a, they would often have a large figure that would be burnt at the end of the three or four-day festival. I don't know if the California Burning Man got it, got it from there. I I suspect so, but but. They would also, often at the end of three or four days, have this huge 40-foot figure. They're the people who have the 40-foot puppets at demonstrations that you've seen, Bread and Puppet Theater's beautiful resource. And one of their shows, and I had the poster from it, was called The One Who Set Out to Study Fear. And I have that on this, my study. The One Who Set Out to Study Fear. And we have to do that we study fear, we study anger. This is our practice. We have to study this well enough so that we know it. And in a sense, it becomes a friend. Just like in the end, the Buddha became friends with Mara. There's a beautiful story that comes through Thich Nhat Hanh, where the Buddha, after he was awake, had a visit from Mara. And the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, said, Mara shouldn't be able to visit. Mara's a bad dude. <laughs> you know? Mara representing greed, hatred, delusion. And the Buddha said, no, let him visit. Which to me some, um, signifies that the Buddha after his awakening still had difficult states there sometimes. You can interpret in different ways. That's how Thich Nhat Hanh interprets it. And the Buddha said, let Mara come in. Let him come in here and we will have tea together. We will have tea with Mara we will have tea with this difficult energy. And so we study it, we have that enter in. And we do that with fear, we do that with difficult emotions. Metta, when we practice it a lot, helps us have the balance to be able to do that. Metta is an antidote to fear. It helps us to do that. And finally, we, through metta practice, we really deepen our sense of our deepest level being that of the radiant heart. We touch that enough so we have confidence, this is who I am, and some kind of confidence. It's not always solid in a distressful moment, but some confidence as we practice more and more. And maybe that was there in my situation on the freeway, I don't know. I didn't think about it in those terms. We have a confidence that who I most basically am is wisdom and love. That's my basic nature. This is what deepens in our practice and maybe becomes able more and more to hold everything. Maybe it's like that dream, which is really, it's really something like what the Buddha was saying. The arrows come and I can be with the arrows, the Buddha says, and the arrows, which are the arrows of distress, turn into flowers through the energy of wisdom and love. And maybe there's that confidence that grows as we practice more. Not to be wanted quickly, not not to be be cultivated, to be trained for, but can know that people who've been practicing a lot know that this grows. We touch this more and more. And we know from the great teachers over the ages, this is what they report. They rest more in what we might call the awakened heart. In the awakened mind and the awakened body. And this is ultimately how we know that this is deeper than fear. So, any any questions or reflections or um, <coughs> anything spark you that you'd like to bring up for the whole group? Please.
1: Um, I was just, when you started talking about it, I reflected on how my wife's daughter last night was actually practicing this, this meta, this same this, way. She had a lot of fear.
0: We went to meet someone that she was afraid of meeting. Yeah. And met her and
1: treated her with uh, an open heart. With, with yeah. Her. And what came from it, this morning when she came back, I asked her how it went. And she said, I had no need to be afraid of her. You know, she's really a very
0: kind person. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful. So Let me repeat that. And yeah. This is Jenny? No, it's Natalie, her younger sister. Jenny. OK, uh, Natalie. So reporting reporting uh, Natalie feeling fear about meeting a person and having access to the practice of metta and having that help her to be with the meeting and then actually coming through that and saying, I have nothing to fear, she's basically a kind person. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe when he's ready. Yeah. Okay, please, Rob.
1: Yeah. My question might be a little bit jumbled, but when I was thinking before about the meditation practice, thinking of mindfulness and, and metta and
0: other types of meditation yeah. that involve maybe the mantra, the self-mesmeses and what I get into is
1: yeah. Um, and, and a little bit losing control, losing focus, or yeah.
0: losing mindfulness.
1: Yeah. And is this a combination of being mindful but not losing control? Um in other words, is there effort uh, in involved are in you addressing what you're mindful
0: of? Uh so Rob is uh is this a question about, uh, particularly, mindfulness practice or more the metta practice? Um, I th- think it's about both. Both. So it's really yeah. a question about uh, the level of effort in both mindfulness and metta practice? Yes. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a very important topic, you know, that one of the eight <laughs> factors of the path of liberation is translated as right effort, or wise effort. You know, which is really and which sometimes we think of that it means like getting getting really putting out a lot of energy and doing it right. But it's it's actually more the effort to be present and responsive each moment is really the essence of so-called wise effort. To be uh, present and responsive each moment, and so uh, with effort. With uh, I'll use the word effort, I, I would prefer a little better translation because effort in English has connotations of striving or a little, sometimes a little tenseness connected with it. And it really, uh, the, the sense of effort, the word is virya, which could be sometimes translated as energy uh, in, from the Pali language. And it has both an active and a receptive dimension. And there, there is uh, active effort and there's receptive effort. You know, and and they're, they're both present in both mindfulness and metta. So in mindfulness, there is an active effort to be with what's happening. It might be active in the, also in the sense of saying, I'm going down this train of thought, this distraction for the 40th time. Let me bring myself back. That's, act, that's active in a way. We're saying, I will not indulge in this for the 30th time. Okay. You know, can, there's some active effort there. And then there's also, we might say, the more receptive effort to be present, to just be with what's there. It's not so much because we have to let go of some of that active effort in mindfulness and just be receptive to whatever's happened. If we have too much of the active effort, it can be tight or it can be overly controlling. And so we want want to play with that balance. And similar balance in metta practice. We have to be active to keep saying the phrases. You know, and... What we're exploring in the retreat, for example, is very much that balance. I actually gave a talk. We might say it's a balance between doing and being, which is very true for the mindfulness. There's a balance between doing and being in our practice very much. And in metta, the doing is the saying of the phrases that keep coming back. And for many of us, when like for people in the first part of the retreat, they have to do a lot of that more active doing. It's a little bit like you get things going, you crank up the engine, you keep it going. And then at a certain point, it's important to let the uh, effort be more receptive. So sort of, we, we sometimes say, initially we do the practice, and then as we relax more, the practice does us. <laughs> That's one way to, to speak about it. Or we, you know, sometimes a guidance we, that I might give is, at the beginning of your practice, if you sense that the more receptive dimension is there, let let whatever happens be there with a sense of mystery, you know, or let it be there with ease, you know, so there's not so much a doing and more of a receptive quality, or let the the quality of love or care emerge rather than saying, I will say these phrases so I become loving, (laughs) (laughs) which doesn't sound extremely loving, (laughs) you know. And so there is that balance in both of them. And maybe if you think of active and receptive, and each of those could be brought out in a lot of ways. Receptive could mean more ease, more of a sense of mystery, more of a sense of being done, less control. You know, and, but the doing's also very crucial. And that's a little more active, maybe a little more control, and so forth. That's a great question. Thanks. Please, Barbara.
1: I'm still a little confused when you say "do meta," because I see it two ways. I see it as reciting the phrases for yourself or yeah. someone else or the world.
0: Yeah.
1: Or sometimes just the word "meta" just relaxes and opens. Yeah. The heart, and so it's. One, I see it as the doing of the phrases, and the other is just being in it or something. Yeah. In a loving, relaxed, open space and not doing it. Yeah. So, so question, question,
0: question about two aspects. One, the doing of the phrases, the saying of the phrases. And the second, the being, we might say, in the field of metta. So it very much relates to Rob's question. Very similar. You're identifying again. I think the more active and the more receptive qualities. Both are necessary. And yet, at a given moment, we might need to emphasize one or the other. Yeah. So, and so you as could so just
1: say meta to yourself and just be and evoke
0: if that works. While. Yeah. And the meta works very differently for different people. So, if you and and ultimately, the phrases, as I mentioned, are means to an end what we're really looking for is that sense of warmth or kindness or openness. And if you can get there, some people uh, don't use the phrases. Some people think of uh, sweet puppy dogs. Mmm, puppy dogs. (laughs) Puppy dogs. And and something emerges in their hearts and they just ride that, you know. (laughs) Periodically thinking of sweet puppy dogs. So, and you know, or you might think of a, a beautiful scene in nature, or a beloved, or something like that. So it could be done in different ways, and people do. The phrases are we don't know actually how the Buddha suggested the actual technical practice of metta. The techniques we use date from about 1500 years ago. You know, from the, the uh, systematization of a, of a, a scholar named uh, Buddhagosa, writing in the book called The Path of Purification. So,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe last one, and then, then we'll finish. Please.
1: Um, so, I've been practicing here for about five years. Yeah. And every year around the holidays, the practice comes in handy. Yeah. I have to say, with my family. Yeah. Um, and every year... The more metta practice I practice, the more receptive I am to other issues that come up, especially yeah. paying attention to what's happening in my body yeah. at the time. So this year I've been practicing meta practice with my very difficult parents who have yeah. been visiting. Yeah. And I've practiced the metta towards them and towards myself yeah. and towards the family. Um, and here we are into January and they're gone and it's gonna be another year, but I still feel this pain in my body. Yeah. This this pain is activated every year and I keep sending the to practice to myself. Yeah. Um and I'm just wondering how how do you know at one point am I doing the right practice for myself? Yeah. Does I, do I just keep I went through the day long
0: and i am yeah. doing this every day.
1: And I just sit with it
0: but I can feel the heartbreak. Yeah, and your name is? Tammy. Tammy's question Mm -hmm. is partly a report of having used metta, particularly um, worked with metta practice in the context of being with family once a year around the holiday time and finding it quite helpful and supportive. But still, even now, I presume, she can feel a pain there in relation to family, and the question is, uh, when does it end? <laughs> really, you didn't say it like that, but, but when does it, you know, or how long will I need to do this, and what's the prognosis? <laughs> uh, okay. The more, and the more, the more practice tends to make you open to something which maybe in the past you had covered over with a, a nice layer of uh, protective denial yes. <laughs> or, or whatever. Yes. If I can say it like that, I hope that's okay. And um, it's a great question, and I'll be, I'll be brief for, for the sake of time. Um, it's beautiful that the metta has been such a resource for such a situation, because the difficulties or the challenges that we have in our family context are quite primal, you know, and they're, um, they're with us. You know, they're with us in ways that other kinds of pain are sometimes not necessarily with us for the duration <laughs> you know, of our lives. Um, so I think it's helpful to see that these are deep and primal and um, deeply rooted forms of pain maybe maybe the deepest in your life, I don't know. Uh, and I like to think of we you know we Actually, at the retreat today, the theme is Metta with a Difficult Person. That's what everyone is up there with difficult people. <laughs> there are all these beings flying in to be of service. You know, all the difficult people of a hundred people's lives are rushing to the retreat to be present and help in the transformation of the heart and maybe get some benefits themselves in the long run. And uh, we say, Practice. We work up to this, so the development of metta. It's really, really crucial to have most of our metta practice not be with the difficult people, but to really have it be with uh, other kinds of situations. That's one thing, and that uh, we often say, don't go right away to the difficult, the most difficult situations, but practice a lot with, mm. with. Uh, limited or moderate levels of difficulty, because it's actually a place where we can see some of the same habit patterns and some of the same dynamics that are there with higher degrees of difficulty. The same patterns will be there, they just won't have so much juice or charge. And it's really valuable to be with them in a little easier way. It can make a big difference when it's transferred to the most difficult ones. And to know that the most difficult pains of our life Uh, take time to heal and we can also sometimes do really focused work like if sometimes if you were at a metta retreat for seven days there might be it might be that something got healed uh, more fully. It's also helpful to really combine the metta practice towards a difficult person with compassion practice and forgiveness practice. Really good to bring in those other two as well. I can't say because of time or do you have access to those two practices? Um, I haven't specifically... Yeah. I, I have to a bit, I'm feeling yeah. more like there's some
1: equanimity
0: and yeah. things that aren't going to change of, and I don't know how to Yeah, that. all of those practices and you can maybe, maybe we could talk another time about that and there, on Dharma Seed there are talks on forgiveness and outline of practices and so forth and compassion, equanimity, forgiveness. I have found personally that really complementing metta with difficult people with forgiveness for what I've done, for what they've done, and also compassion for myself, for them, really is an important uh, balance to the metta practice. So that's, that's another piece. So those are a few suggestions. Have patience and uh, know that there can be a lot of learning there. Yeah, You're very welcome. So I'll invite us to sit briefly, and bring to mind whatever was helpful from the morning. Maybe related to the theme of fear and love, fear and metta. Maybe it was something quite different that got sparked. And sit with what was important and any of your intentions coming out of the morning. <clears throat> So remembering that we practice for ourselves, we practice for others. Sometimes in mysterious ways, the power and the impact of our practice affects both ourselves and others. Ultimately, in known and unknown ways, going out into the world for the benefit of all beings.